With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So, Lewis House, uh, you've been on the podcast before, and I'm holding your brand new book, which is excellent. I highly recommend it. It's called The School of Greatness, A Real World Guide to Living Bigger, Loving Deeper, and Leaving a Legacy. Did you come up with that subtitle? I did. Really? I did, yes. <laughs> like, I always hate subtitles, to be honest. It took me like three months to figure it out. I was so... Three months to figure out just a sentence. Literally, three months, I was going back and forth with the publisher. I was split testing with my audience. I posted on Facebook like six different options. I was like, what do you guys want? What do you guys like the best? And so many authors were telling me, don't go with this subtitle because it's too broad. It needs to be like how to make millions, how to do this, yeah, yeah. how to like more actionable. And, um, but my audience, every time I posted something out there with different options, this was the winner every time. What about just, and we're going to get into the school, the actual school of greatness <laughs> and how you prescribe. So basically, before we get more into the subtitle, you basically interviewed a bunch of people who you felt, uh, had clearly achieved a level of excellence mm-hmm. and you wanted to learn what separated them out from the pack yes. and, and including yourself as you've achieved Olympic level excellence in a variety of areas. And so you tell your story as well as the stories of, of everybody else. And from this book, the school of greatness, we can kind of learn these habits of some amazing people. Like who are yes. some of the people you interviewed? You know, I've had uh, angel Martinez who is uh, the CEO of Deckers. You might know that company yeah. Deckers a billion, you know, one point something billion dollar company. So learning about how he started out here in New York City in poverty, couldn't even afford shoes when he was a kid and really wanted Chuck Taylors, couldn't even afford them to now he runs one of the biggest shoe companies in the world uh, to Olympic gold medalists like Sean Johnson talking about how the most pressure moment, billions of people watching you at 16 years old, how can you perform at the highest level and win a gold medal at 16? Can you imagine that? I can't even imagine that at 32. Like, you know what I mean? When I was 16, you know, I think for something like that, you have to have a certain level of maturity as early as the age of like six or seven to be able to be the best in the world by age of 16. I mean, when I was 16, I was basically the most immature teenager possible. I was right there with you. So, I mean, I was like... I would have like my paper out and I would dump the papers in the sewer and you know, I was not ready for like Olympic gold medal material. Exactly. So she's very mature for her age for sure. But, uh, I was not ready for a girlfriend at that time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, and, uh, you know, definitely look, no girl was ready for me at that time. So, uh, but I want to, I want to kind of break it down how you break it down. You kind of go over every aspect of what the, what, are the ingredients of greatness. But I just want to ask you one more question about the subtitle. Yes. Did you consider just a real world guide to living bigger? I didn't Cause, consider that. Because I get I get like it that. from that. You like it? Yeah. You just did that? Not, not that I'm criticizing this. Sure, sure, just, sure. I never really notice subtitles anyway. I, yeah, yeah. I, I always push back. Like I kind of like to just have the Simple title. Yeah. Like the school of greatness sounds great. I know what it's about. I'm going to learn how to be great. You know, I'm, uh, from a lot of different angles, I, try, I approach this. The school of greatness for me, Approaches more men. That title, okay, great. Approaches more men. A real guy to live in here, loving deeper. I see. see. It's more tailored to women. I feel like women will connect with that message better. And the essence and the energy of the book can capture all people. So in some ways, it's like I might be doing a disservice because I'm not specifically talking to one person or one demographic. But that's not what the book's about. Okay, so what I want to do is I basically want to go through the outline of the book, yes. and you can describe what you learn from each person in, in that in that section or chapter or whatever sure. so the first thing you have is create a vision mm-hmm. um and i find a lot of people have a hard time with what i'll call the vision thing <laughs> like most people don't really know what how to find their vision yeah. how to find their you know people think that they should have one purpose in life like i got um an email today from a parent and she, and she's upset because her daughter is having a hard time she's going from thing to thing to thing mm-hmm. And her daughter is only 
16 or 17 years old. And I said, that's totally yeah. okay. Uh, like it's good to explore many things, but at what point do you kind of sh shift from searching to finding and how do you find? You know, it's a great question because when I was 16, all I wanted was to have a girlfriend and to make it and play and get a college scholarship. And then when I was in college, all I wanted to do was be a professional athlete. And then when I was injured and didn't know what I wanted to do, all I wanted to do was get off my sister's couch and be able to afford an, an apartment on my own. So I think I'm still evolving. Right now I have a vision that is to serve 100 million people, to show them how to make a full-time living doing what they love. That's well, let me ask you a question about that. So, so, so aside from the girlfriend thing, uh -huh. all your other things were about, uh, again, you, you exploring different slices of, mm -hmm. of this concept of greatness. Around my, around my passion, my dream. Right. Yeah, your, your passion, maybe it was concentrated for a while on like athletics, and we yes. discussed this in other podcasts, but it, you broadened it out. It reminds me of like how A.J. Jacobs will take a concept, like let's say the year of living biblically, and then he'll divide that up into like 20 concepts about living biblically. Right. And that's essentially what you did. Uh, you know, in terms of your own life, instead of you uh, being a pro football player, you kind of look at all aspects of professionalism and excellence. Yes. And, uh, you know, you became an Olympic level athlete and so on. So, so what did you, how do the people in your book, how did they find their vision? You know, it's, this is going to sound a little cheesy and lame probably, but they found it by dreaming. And I think this is something a lot of people don't do enough of. And it's probably, maybe this will connect with the audience, maybe not, but when we were kids, I believe we used to dream all the time. We used to think about all the things we wanted to do. We used to come up with games. We used to think about who we wanted to be when we grow up. And we stopped dreaming. And a lot of these people that I connect with, they have such powerful, vivid dreams. They visualize it. Did you see the movie recently, The, the Walk Walk the Wire or The Man on the Wire? Or I, I haven't, but I've read his autobiography, <clears throat> Philip Petit's yes, autobiography. Yes, yes. He's the one who, um, just for the audience, he very sneakily yes. uh, attached a wire between the two World Trade Centers and then tightroped for 45 minutes. That strikes me as unbelievable, yeah, right? Crazy. Yeah. And here's the thing, I watched the movie and I was so inspired by this because he was doing this in Paris or whatever for like buildings for a while and he was only 25 years old when this happened but he, he saw like a magazine or newspaper ad with the Twin Towers that were being built. They weren't even built yet. And he saw them, how tall they were going to be. They were like twice the size of the Eiffel Tower. And he said, right then he looked at it and he said, this is my dream, is to walk between those two towers. And he drew a line in between two of those in this newspaper ad, based on the movie description anyways. And he was so committed to this vision, this dream. He had this idea. It wasn't even built. He couldn't even physically do it at that point because it wasn't built. But he, he cultivated a team of people to be inspired by his dream. And for months and months and months, I guess years, he created a plan to go make it happen. And so many things had to happen for him to make it work. He could have easily died. He could have easily not made it up there. But he was able to dream and then created a game plan around the dream. And what I like about it is, like, while I normally think of uh, tightrope walking as sort of an athletic endeavor, uh -huh. it's really, uh, he views it more as, like, a work of art. Like, that was yes. a piece of art for him. Yes. And so his vision was very artistic as opposed to kind of uh, – I mean, there was a skill-oriented part because you have to know how to do that. But the ultimate vision is this would be like a work of art in total. Yes. And the thing that was even more inspiring is he wanted to create this work of art that inspired other people to, to fulfill their dreams hmm. and to chase the dreams that they thought weren't possible. Do you think that's true for many of the people you spoke to is that their vision ultimately was not to just do what they wanted to do, which was great, but mm -hmm. also to have it be a vehicle to inspire others, like a work, either a work of art yes. or a work of inspiration or something like that. Absolutely. The first chapter I talk about is vision. The final chapter in the book, I talk about living a life of service. And all these great people that I interview, and I'm sure you interview uh, as well, all these great people have an element of giving back. I mean, you, James, you're constantly giving back to your audience. You're constantly, you're doing so much where you're investing the money, not looking for a return on your investment to give you have a gift of connecting with people and connecting ideas for people with your podcast, your books. You give away your books to people all the time, right. you know. Um, and, I, and I'm assuming that you you would say that you know it feels great to give and to give back and live a life of service. Uh, absolutely, I find I find also in if you if you're not focused on the giving. So so in all my endeavors, it's always I have a, a value system and it's a message before money. So I always make sure, am I really being true to my message? Um, and if, if that's not the case, I always find I'm never going to make 
the money. The money is a byproduct of, of the message or, the, or your value system or your inspiration right. or whatever. Or when you focused on the money, like you did many times before, you I, went bankrupt. I, I, I totally you ruined yourself. Your yeah. relationships were done. You had like you had to ask your parents for money for diapers, like all these things. I remember you saying. Yeah. And so you can make the money, but is that sustainable? Yes, yeah, so, and you have to be. But then it requires a certain maturity because I didn't have that maturity when I was younger. Like, uh, you know, it's it's not just message before money. It's message before, uh, you know, sex, drugs, right. rock and roll. Yeah, 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 so, exactly. you know, you have to make sure. So how do you find what your message is? Yeah. So the vision thing and figuring this out, because a lot of people say, well, I don't know what I want or I want all these different things. I want to do it all like your friend's daughter who's like going from right. thing. I think there's. The best way to explain this is there's different seasons of our life. And I look at everything in sports terms. In sports, if I was in the playoffs every week, all year round, I'd be brain dead playing football because it'd be so hard and demanding. That's why there's a preseason, there's an off season, there's the regular season, then there's the playoffs. And then you have a break to reevaluate. And, and then, though, by let's say age of 29 or 30, your career as a football player is over, but yeah. then you go into sports, a new season casting, of life. or yeah. A new season. So there's constant reevaluation of what I want to create, it's constant seasons of our life. And, you know, it reminds me too, like, take Roger Staubach, right, yeah. who was the uh, one of the most famous quarterbacks ever for the Dallas Cowboys. It's like, don't, I don't know anything about football. It's like right. the right football player I know. <laughs> Primarily because he took that excellence of being this Hall of Fame level quarterback and he made like $300 million in real estate after that. Yeah. Like, you can transfer the techniques of excellence from one field to yes. another once you know how to do it. Some so, people don't know how to do it though. Or they get stuck in the past right? and they don't figure out how to translate it over. So, so I think then the important thing to remember is, you know, start off with create a vision. Yes. You can't you can't just jump from one area to the next thinking you're an expert in the next. You have to go from one area of excellence and, and understand that first now you need vision if you're going to yes. reinvent yourself. And here's an exercise I talk about in the book actually in the first chapter on how to have that vision. Some people say, well, how do I come up with it? Um, or I don't know because I've got all these different ideas. And what I say is to literally go into nature by yourself, no phone, no computer, take a piece of paper and a pen or a notepad and lay there in nature, in silence, and dream about what one perfect day could look like for you. So if I could have anything in any day, what would that look like? Who would I be spending time with? What would I be working on? If you're at the beach all day, okay, then write that down. If what if they write too many things down? Like I think a lot of times mm -hmm. people might write 20 things down, right. and you can't really be excellent sure. simultaneously at 20 things. Yeah, yeah, you can't be. I think it's maybe when you're 100, maybe you can become excellent over 20 yeah. things. But I think from one day, what would you want to do? So uh, what would you be doing when you wake up? So I'll give you an example. Uh, I wake up at 7 a.m. with the sun shining on my face and listening to the waves crashing in the distance. And I wake up with a smile on my face because I can't believe that I'm laying next to the woman on my dreams and she's with me. So that would be like the, my first moment of my vision of my perfect day. And then what would the next thing be? What would I be doing next? What would I be working on during my, my business hours later in the day? What would I be doing at nighttime? Would I be traveling or planning a trip? So kind of like writing down and dreaming in nature what this could look like. So the first part of this exercise is just to write it down what one perfect day could look like and be very descriptive on all the things that you want to create, feel, touch, smell, who you're hanging out with, what you're working on, your but, workouts. But then I would like, like take you as an example um, and then I'd like to also have you talk about someone in sure. the book, but you, as an example, you know, when you were in college, your perfect day included being a pro, a pro athlete and you didn't, uh, I mean, you are to some extent, but you didn't, that wasn't really, that didn't become your life purpose. It's no. a little different now. Right, right. And should you then broaden what you think is the specific perfect day and just broaden it slightly so you could have, it's almost like an umbrella sure. over, over lots of ways you could slice it. You know, it depends on what season of life you're in. So if I was in college, I would write about wanting to be a professional athlete, training every day for that, what I'm working on to get it in my perfect day. Um, and then there's a second part of this exercise. In sports, the best football teams that I played on, when I'd walk into the locker room before practice, the coaches would have an itinerary for us of everything we were doing for that day. So the water break times we would have, the offense, the defense, Everything was scheduled of what we were creating that day in order to achieve our vision for that week hmm. of winning the game. So we knew everything we were going to do before we went out into the practice field. We didn't just show up and the coach would just say, okay, show up on the field whenever you want and we'll, we'll throw the ball around. 
It was very detailed and very clear. And so what I would say for the second part of this exercise, after you write down your, your vision for a perfect day, is to create an itinerary for this one day. From the moment you wake up, say it's 7 a.m., every 30-minute increments, what are you doing until the moment you go to bed to fit this vision, this dream you have into your actual day? Schedule it out. If it's And maybe you're busy, you don't have all the time to do everything right now, you've got three jobs or whatever, and you're like, well, that doesn't work for me. Figure out the first hour of your day. How can you fit in the first hour of your perfect day and schedule that in and then start working to adding more and more hours to this dream you have into your everyday. You know, that is so key. And um, uh, it reminds me of the story of the woman who wrote the movie Pitch Perfect, which uh, my kids, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. My kids love the movie. I actually love the movie. Uh, who's the main actress? Uh, I forget her name, something but Hendrix I or something. Is that her name? I totally forget, but, but I like her though. Yeah, she's, yes. she's good. But the writer, uh, it's a good movie, actually. yeah, yeah, it's a fun movie. And the writer, um, wrote it over a period of three years on her subway commute to work. Wow. So it's a matter of finding, like a lot of people say, I have no time, but it's a matter of kind of finding there is always time. Yes. And so, I mean, let's even say you work an eight hour workday. That means you sleep eight hours, you work eight hours, and then you have eight hours to do something. And she was yeah. just, let's say she had a 15 minute subway ride. It took her three years and now she made one of the most popular movies yeah. ever. And that's Pitch Perfect. Who's coming yeah, out and yeah. lots of things, yeah. So, so what about what about the um, people in the book? Who, who do you see as having like kind of a, a clear vision and they, they did it? You know, a lot of the people I've interviewed, Angel Martinez is a great example of this. He was, when, when he was a young kid, he had a vision of just buying a pair of shoes and then fell in love with shoes and the whole essence of shoes and what that represents for him. The freedom it gives him, the identity it gives him as having this pair of sneakers when he was a kid here in New York City, uh, you know, essentially just trying to make it. You know, it's so funny because A, you think who, who grows up thinking, boy, I really want to sell a lot of shoes, but here is an example. It's an example. But, and it reminds me of Sam Walton, obviously of Walmart fame, uh, one time he took, he and his number two guy went to some, I don't know, shopping store in a strip mall somewhere. And, and they, they got out and Sam Walton said to the other guy, well, what did you think? And the guy was like, eh, you know, seemed a little dirty on the floor. Right, right. Um, and Sam Walton was like, but yeah, but did you see um, the, the perfumes rack? They had this, this, this. They were showing these perfumes in this way. They were holding them this way. It was sure. like, perfect. I took all these notes and he had like page after page of notes. And then did you see like the, the, um, you know, the clothes hanger rack, you know, where they had all the, right. you know, closet supplies, like it was amazing. And so Sam Walton, like had this passion for how a store should be laid out. And mm. he, then he created the biggest store ever. It's, so except for Amazon now, right, right, right. Biggest so, retail store. Yeah. Place, right. Yeah. So, I mean, this for me, vision is the first thing. Once you have the vision, then the next steps is figuring out how to make it come true. And uh, that's kind of the rest of the book is like, okay, once the vision comes, there's going to be a lot of adversity along your way. Well, I, I wanna, I'm going to get to that in one second. Yes. And I, I like your nature strategy. I have one, I have a, a similar strategy, which is, but, but it doesn't involve nature because I'm not a nature <laughs> person. Go into a bookstore uh. before they die and bookstores <laughs> have all the, all the interests are clearly labeled. So from the front entrance, you can see everything that you could possibly be interested in and find a section where you're willing to read every single book in that section. Oh. So if you're, if there's some section that really draws you and like you're literally willing to read every book in that section, then that's a, a potential vision for you. I like that. And if, it, if it's not true, then just, I don't know, to get a bunch of books and then come back to the bookstore tomorrow and see what you want to read. Like just yeah. keep doing it because you don't know. You can also just ask yourself the question, what's the thing that makes me the happiest every yeah. single day that I'm working on? And start saying, okay, I enjoy being around kids. I enjoy being by the beach. I enjoy working out. Okay, there's a place to start from. You could also ask your friends, what's the thing I do the best? Where you see me at my happiest? Ask no, your friends. That's a great point. When am I the happiest? When am I the most fun and most joyful to be around? Can, can you come up with a, and I know, where, I know you have 12 more chapters here where you're dwelling on this, but I really think this is really important. Mm -hmm. Can you come up with a vision if, or a purpose or a passion or whatever, if the relationships in your life are not functioning? Like if you're having a problem with family or friends or spouses or girlfriends or boyfriends or a, a problem with substance abuse or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can. I think uh, it's powerful to have a great team around you supporting you and have great relationships around you. But listen, I didn't have all my relationships in order my whole life, you know, with my family, my parents, friends, there was conflict 
coaches, and I was still able to cr- achieve great things. So maybe this gets into your next session, section, which is turning adversity into advantage. Yes. So what are the different types of adversity that you saw along the people you spoke to, spoke with? I mean, so many. I mean, I think of a guy, Kyle Maynard, who was born without arms and legs. That's, and, a, that's adversity. Right? It's like, okay, all of a sudden, you can't walk, you can't grab anything. And he's lived an incredible life. He's climbed Mount Kilimanjaro on his oh elbows. God. It took him 12 days to crawl up the mountain where people die who have legs climbing up this mountain. So, so, so why, why, what, why did he do that? I think he was inspired. I mean, he had a mission to uh, serve the, the fallen heroes from, from the army to, say, to represent, you know, um, to give back to them. They, were, they poured the ashes out uh, for some people that died in, in the army at the top there. And he wanted to be an inspiration to other people who have excuses in their life. So his vision was specifically to show how adversity, no matter what your adversity is, it could be turned into an advantage. Of course, yeah. And you can inspire people with it. I like to say, you know, I've talked about you. I've talked about this on on your podcast before, but I've experienced sexual abuse. I've experienced my brother was in prison for a number of years. I've gone through injuries, parents divorce, things like that. Not as bad as a lot of people in the world, but I've gone through adversity, and I was I could have had it all hold me back and say I'm a victim and this is uh, not fair and why me, but instead I learned to use it as my story and yeah, use so, it as fuel. So how? So I I see that a lot too that people. Um, Use it. Use these things as excuses, mm-hmm. and, and and there's all many. There's many layers. Like I don't have enough money to do this, or I don't live in Paris, so I can't time. be a painter. I've got kids. I'm right. time, or I'm stuck in this relationship, or I'm married and I can't get out of it. So so sometimes those are serious. Yeah. Uh, like let's say if someone's in jail, they're probably not going to create a car company at the same no, time. Of course not. So so. In some cases, you have to turn adversity into an advantage. In some cases, you have to eliminate the adversity, yes. like, A, get out of jail or, right, yeah, or, exactly. or get out of an abusive relationship or like, whatever. And like my brother, great example, he was in prison for four and a half years for selling drugs to an undercover cop when he was 18 in college. Oh, my God. And um, he could have – he was sentenced six to 25 years. And he could have stayed in that whole time if he would have had bad behavior, if he would have said, screw the system, this and that, and just messed up. But he got out on four and a half years in good behavior. He went to school during prison. He did everything he could to transform his life to make up for it. And then when he got out of prison, he could have said, you know what? No one's going to hire an ex-convict because that doesn't happen. Instead, he created his own vision of wanting to be the best jazz violinist in the world. He knocked on every restaurant door in Columbus when he came back home. He was constantly on the go, hustling, using his story and saying, hey, this is what I did, but here's where I'm going. And this isn't me anymore. And this is what I want to provide to the world. And I have a great talent to offer through giving music. And his music, when I watch him live, it's like he puts his whole heart and soul from all the pain he had from those four and a half years. It comes out in his music and it creates something beautiful. Without that experience of adversity, he would not be the man he is today, the, the loving father and, and husband he is. And he would not be able to share this gift with the world the way he's doing it. I, I like um, you know, two things you, you just said there. Um, he said, here's what I did and here's where I'm going. Mm-hmm. And he could demonstrate that because he could yes. show all the things he had achieved, yes. you know, while he was in jail. And then B, he was giving, he, he offered something of value. Yes. Like, so they, they would bet like a restaurant, for instance, would make more money if they had a good, I don't know, jazz violinist exactly. working there. So, so he was giving something that they couldn't say, ah, oh, no, we just can't hire you because right. they, they, they would lose an opportunity. Exactly. So you have to kind of. Uh, oh, it's like you said, you know, he turned that adversity specifically into time to develop his skills and That's to it. focus. And then he knew how to communicate those skills in a way that could serve others. Exactly. So what's an, ex- that's, what's another example from the book for adversity? Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked about, probably everybody's got an example. Everyone, that's the thing. Everyone, I've never I, met anybody like on my podcast and I'm sure on your podcast who, who didn't, didn't face adversity. Right. Exactly. It's stunning. <laughs> And that's actually because I don't know if you really need to have like a shitty life to to be no, successful, no. but but it seems like that's ninety nine point nine nine percent. Here's the thing: the bigger the dream, the bigger the goals we have, adversity is going to come our way no matter what. There's going to be more challenges for us to overcome, to embrace, to learn how to get over to get over to get that next step. And that's the thing: like everyone I interviewed on my podcast could have gone in any chapter that I talk about because these are all common principles that they've faced, overcome, that they've embraced. Um, and that's the thing. Most people are like, well, 
it should come easy. But it's like, if you have a big dream, if you want to make millions, if you want to do all these things, there's going to be obstacles already. You don't have to create obstacles for yourself. I mean, I think part of the thing about adversity, part of the thing about mistakes, which you don't learn in school. I mean, I, I try to tell this to my daughter. She calls me up and says, oh, I got a hundred in biology. And I said, well, that's really disappointing. And she's like, what are you talking about? It was a hundred. And, <laughs> and I said, well, in the real world, you know, you're, you're good if maybe 50% of your decisions work out. Right. And in school, that would be called an F. That would be failure. Right. And, but in the real world, that would be success. So it seems like something's wrong if you're getting, if the hundreds are coming too easy. I'm not bragging about her because I'm trying right, right, right. to change your behavior. And so I try, I try, like when I teach her tennis, for instance, I try to make her make mistakes because you only, when you make mistakes, that's, that's when you figure out how to, uh, you start really thinking, how can I adjust so that I'm not making a mistake? If you just hit the hundred, you don't think. Uh, and it's the, it's the repeated thinking, particularly when you're younger, uh, that builds uh, much faster connections mm -hmm. between the synapses in the brain. I like that. And uh, it's very important actually for skill learning to actually make lots of mistakes mm -hmm. because then you do, you're doing it over and over and over again until you stop making mistakes. Yeah. One of the chapters I talk about that could also relate to this is, is mastering your body. I tell people to experience pain every single day. Okay, so how should I do that? You should do some type of workout where it's really uncomfortable. You know, I used to have a trainer uh, and Claudia, my wife can attest to this, I would get back after an hour, hour and a half, and I was in so much pain and agony, and I was sweating, and I was gross. I didn't enjoy it. I didn't really enjoy, I mean, not that you have to enjoy everything in life, but I, that wasn't good for me. Like, I ultimately stopped because it was so annoying for if me. It was, well, if it's not annoying or it doesn't work for you, then you shouldn't do it, but I think you should experience some type of discomfort every single day to learn and to grow. I think the only way you're gonna grow is if there's discomfort or if you're learning from mistakes, right? Yeah. That's the way we learn and connect new things and figure out how to, you know, move through it. Like, like, okay, so, so let me ask you. It so I be like 100 push-ups without stopping. Yeah. Or going to as many push-ups as you can without stopping. <laughs> how many push-ups can you do without stopping? Ah, maybe 45, maybe. Okay, but, could you do 100? Would that be? No, I couldn't right now. Right. I, but I could probably train myself to do it. I bet you I could do 40. Really? Yeah. Full push-ups, chest to the ground. And yeah, yeah. We're going to do an experiment after this. <laughs> okay, I'm doing here's, here's what you should do. Like every day I say, okay, I'm going to do as many push-ups as I can in the morning. And then when I'm at failure, I'm going to do five more. So when I'm at my last one, I can't even move, I'm going to do five more. Just that one five-minute exercise is going to make you expand your mind and your body. Well, somebody once asked Muhammad Ali, how many push-ups do you do a day? And he said, I don't know. I don't start counting until I'm in pain. Ooh, that's so, good. Yeah. I like that. So, so... Okay, let's say it's something a little more abstract, like like I love writing, for instance. How can I experience more discomfort or pain each day in writing? And I try to do that, but it's a hard conceptually to sure, think about. Sure. I mean, I try to be more open, but there's only so question. many. There's only there's only so much blood you can bleed before it seems almost narcissistic. I think you could do exercises that will bring out things that you don't like doing, or that expand you in a different way. So maybe only writing in a haiku or these different formats. I'm not sure these other formats of writing style, but only writing in a certain way as an exercise for five minutes. Yeah, or it could be I like that. Or it could be okay. Um, I'm going to call someone and that I haven't talked to in a long time that I really don't want to talk to. And that's a great one for me because I do not like doing that. Exactly. So something I'm going to start doing that. That's painful. Like, Hey, no, I just wanted to connect and say I've been an asshole and I, I or whatever, like yeah. I should have reached out and I really want to build our relationship stronger. Is there anything I can do to make that happen? Like some, that's uncomfortable for people. Yeah, that or, is. Or writing, you know, it's like do something good. That's uncomfortable. Like writing uh, a gratitude letter to someone that you've had a, a fight with, like telling you, telling them all the things you appreciate about them. I would, it would be all day and night for years <laughs> for me exactly. before but, I get done with that. But I mean, there's different things we can do every day. It doesn't have to be physical pain, but I think the body, you know, if we talk about mastering your, your body, it's important in my mind to have the energy to be able to create great things in the world, to have the focus, the clarity, uh, to be able to make the decisions we have throughout our days. And if our, if our energy, our health, is not in control, is not under, you know, in, in alignment to our vision, then it's going to be hard to make those decisions. Well, um, then you get into how, uh, and this is related to dealing with adversity, but you call the next session, section, uh, cult, cultivate a champion's mindset. Yes. So what, and, and I don't know if you've read mindset by Carol Dweck, 
uh, where she talks Fixed about and growth mindset. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so is it so so talk about what is a champion's mindset? What can I do mm-hmm. to get a champion's mindset? Well, here's the thing. And I'm an old man. Yeah, so right, like, right. you know, uh, we can all get it because we can all lose it very quickly. Yeah. And I'll give you an example. So I know you don't watch sports much. Um, but at the end of the first sports I watched in a really long time was last night, actually in a bar. Uh, in, I don't drink at all, but I did it because the final trailer of Star Wars was happening during uh, this game. No way. Yeah. Was yeah. it amazing? Uh, it was amazing. <laughs> and, the, and the bar was packed, not for the game, but for, for Shut up, all man. people like me who wanted to see the Star Wars trailer. Oh, I still haven't seen it. I don't really watch Star Wars that much. But, uh, that's cool. I'll have to check that out. So at the end of you know the World Series or the Super Bowl or big playoff games, there's usually a, an MVP of the, of the game, someone who does something incredible. And so they go interview that person right away, like, how do you do it? Or how do you feel? Or, or whatever the question they'll ask them. And there's usually two responses, two types of responses. And the first one is the Muhammad Ali approach, since you already mentioned him, the Muhammad Ali approach, which is- I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I knew I was going to win. None of these fools could stop me. I, uh, you know, I train harder, blah, 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 all these different things. It's like their ego is so strong, right? They have but he does that. That's almost strategic. So he has yes. the ego, but he also wants to scare the few, the next competitor but off. There's the Floyd Money Mayweather who's the same way. Like no one can ever beat me in the world. No one will ever beat me. I'm the greatest, right? It's like people have yeah. this confidence. The other approach is first one to just say thanks to God and Jesus for right. giving me the strength and uh, without God, nothing is possible. And all of it goes to him for the glory, that type of response. So what's better? So they're both right because they have an incredible belief in whatever it is that they're focusing on, whether it's themselves. But, but the guy who says, I'm the greatest, isn't he going to be more easily disappointed think, and afraid not to be? The, so he yes. has a fixed mindset. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's going to be harder over time with that person. But, he, but like, look, look at look, the, the length of Muhammad Ali's yes, career yes. versus George Foreman's career, for instance. Exactly. So, exactly. No, I don't think it's good to have the ego fixated on yourself. Um, but the, what I'm, the point I'm making is like the belief is so unwavering either way. They have a belief that God is guiding them or giving them the strength and they're putting the faith in God or the belief in themselves that they have done the work and they've been committed to this. So, so in some sense, having... Faith that they've done the work. Faith is yes. is, is really important, it's and a, it's a sense of belief. Like all, all, all you can right. do is preparation. So if you if you have faith that you did the right preparation yeah. and you know what that right preparation is, then the results are kind of out of your hands. But you have the right mind. You're going into it with the right mindset. But the difference between the very top and second place and third place or whatever are those that don't make it is like they don't believe in themselves enough, and so they haven't done the work or they haven't seen the, the, the results over time to believe in themselves. Enough. Where, where, where does, where does talent play a role here? Like at what percentage of that final, um, leap towards greatness is, is talent the, the one that propels yeah, you? You've got to have incredible talent to get to that position in the first place. You, you know, there's a lot of talented people who can't get there because their mindset isn't there and they don't believe in themselves enough. And, and also I would say it's not necessarily, you don't necessarily have to be number one in the world no. to do great things in the no, world. No, no, no. So, you, you know, for instance, um, I was having a conversation with someone and he was explaining to me the difference between the number 300 tennis player in the world and the number one tennis player in the world. So the number 300 tennis player in the world said, I can put a quarter on the back line and serve and hit that quarter. And the difference between me and the number one is the number one could put a dime on the back line. Right, right, right. And so it's a very tiny difference between 300 Small. and, and yeah. one. I could and probably hit like a, a beach ball, maybe, <laughs> and one out of like 50, right? right? <laughs> so, but still, that, that could be good. Yeah. Like, that could be enough to be like anybody you ever want to be in tennis. Right, right, exactly. So, or if you're an entrepreneur, not everybody is the number one entrepreneur in the world. And here's the difference probably with, between 300 and, and number one in tennis is maybe the number 300 could hit a quarter as well sometimes. But when the pressure is on in the right moments, could he hit that quarter or could he hit that dime consistently? And that's the difference between number one is he doesn't let his mindset or her mindset hold her back when the pressure hits because he's done the work and he believes so much in himself. He's able to remove those fears from his mind. Right. And I, I, I also want to ask, not so bad being number 300 in the world yeah, either. Of course. But amazing. even to get to number 300, he had to have like a champion's mindset exactly. along the way. Yes. Uh, different levels of champion's mindset. Yeah. And so that's why I'm, I'm wondering if maybe talent is that quarter versus dime yes. difference. So, yeah. But there's some people who could hit that dime or a half of a dime 
any time when the pressure isn't on. Maybe in practice they can hit it every time. But when pressure's on, they can't do it because they don't believe in themselves in those moments. How do you deal with the pressure in those moments? How do you practice dealing with that? It's literally practicing it, doing reps, doing uh, you know test games, doing other playoff games. For me, it's it's very fine level. I mean, I had a sports psychologist when I was in that phase of my life. I was constantly doing visualization techniques. There's breathing strategies. It's, it's, it's hard. It just takes a lot of time and energy, like letting go. It reminds me of uh, a story about uh, this guy named Mikhail Botvinnik was the world chess champion in the 1940s. And uh, he would practice, he would play practice games with his opponents smoking uh, right into his face mm, so that yeah, yeah, yeah. so that he would get used to and he hated smoking uh-huh. so he would get used to the most uncomfortable playing environment possible sure. so he could learn how to focus Smart. yeah yeah in football in college what we would do in practice is we would have loud speakers on the field with loud screaming like noise as if it was like fans in the audience that we couldn't hear when we were calling the play so we had to learn like sign language essentially during football so we could know what we were doing silent snap couch so you couldn't hear someone was hiking the ball so we would just enact you know the most pressure filled situations possible in practice so so part of the, t- the trick here is uh, not trick because because it it's sounds intensely difficult but this is related to causing some slight pain for yourself yes you know so again creating like prepare almost like not turn not just turning adversity into an advantage but also prepare preparing for some Mm -hmm. adversity, like looking at your worst case scenarios, which sort of reminds me a little bit of actually marketing. So in marketing, you want to answer people's objections before they ask them so that it builds trust. So, and it's the same thing almost in how you um, build faith in yourself is that you're going to answer all of your potential objections about the skill you're developing. Yeah. And uh, I interviewed a guy named Jim Afromo, who's a sports psychologist. who has got a great book out called uh, Think and Train Like a Champion. Uh, who's, worked, title. who's worked with all these champions, Olympians, and discovered like the science about how to do this. He was like, you know, in practice, you want to get up and play like you're in the championship every practice. In the games, you want to come down with your energy level, actually, because you're usually too high and you want to relax your body. Mm-hmm. Most people are too tense in games as opposed to relax. They put too much emphasis on it. So he's like, come up and practice, come down during the real thing. That's really interesting to come down. Mm-hmm. I would not have expected that. Yes. You would think that in the game, you've got to put in your all. Mm-hmm. But uh, this is a guy, another guy. Like, what happens if you put in your all? It's not good for you? Or you can get I mean, disappointed? I've got a great example for myself, but a guy, Nick Simmons, who's a gold, uh, not a gold medalist, but an Olympic medalist, and uh, I think seven time U.S. champion in the 800 meter uh, race in track and field. I just had him on, and he talked about, you know, before the race, like, the 24 hours before the world championships, the Olympics, what he does is he does everything to get his mind off of the game, off of the race. He'll play video games, he'll watch movies because our adrenaline is going to be pumping so much as it is. He says it's not for about 15 minutes before the race where I actually start to focus. Otherwise, he's going to lose all of his energy. I've done this many times before, but like the night before, I'm like, let's go. I'm so amped up. I'm like running around. I'm like telling people, I'm like, so pumped and then in the game I'm like I can barely walk I'm exhausted yeah and I'm like I've just spent all my energy in the anticipation of this it's funny because I guess like I do something similar whenever I give a, a public talk yeah. I watch at, for at least the 24 hours beforehand uh, all I do is watch stand-up comedy nice so That's I'm smart. not thinking about my talk I at all do that. you can also get in that environment of like yeah you because know? then because yeah and also you see how you know Comedians, as opposed to the normal public speaker, they change their voices. They they know how to walk around the stage. They know how to like play with the crowd a little bit. So these are all critical components of public speaking that most public speakers never think about. Yeah. But at least I'm just watching for entertainment, and then uh, my subconscious is absorbing smart. this other stuff. What's your favorite one to watch? So I can. Um, Louis C.K. is like the number one, but also lately Amy Schumer is a genius. She's good, huh? And lately I've been watching uh, Anthony Jeselnik, who's not as well known. Um, okay. And I like seeing uh, Andy Samberg when not he doesn't do stand up as much. Oh, okay. Um, but I like his talk. He gives like speeches, like he'll open up the Emmys or whatever, and it's, it's almost hilarious. like him doing. Yeah, he's hilarious. It's almost like him doing stand up, and it's incredible. I saw him do. I went to the Facebook conference like 
four, three, four years ago, and he came out as um, oh yeah, Zuckerberg. I've seen that video. It was hilarious. That was great. I was there, and I was like, "This is unbelievable." Yeah. Well, he did the Harvard commencement speech and he imitating Mark Zuckerberg, and that was hilarious. So, so that's, that's so what cool. I do. Yeah, um, very cool. So let's see the next section. I'm, I'm going to develop hustle. Yeah, which I see a lot in the entrepreneurial space. But what do you uh-huh. mean in general? I mean, another great example I talk about my brother in the book is when I would go watch him perform at these like small little dive bar jazz clubs after he got out of prison for a number of years, trying to make a business for himself and make money. He would perform in front of like 15, 20 people. And then afterwards he would go out and take his CDs and hand them to each person one by one and say, will you buy a copy? You know, he's maybe only going to make a hundred bucks from like the door or whatever at the bar. But then afterwards he can make additional money by selling the CDs. And most artists will just put them on a stand in the back and like say, leave 10 bucks or 15 bucks. He would literally go out after in breaks and say, thank you for coming. Will you buy a CD? He'd put it in their hands and say, will you buy it? And wait for them for, to respond. If they didn't buy it, he'd be like, okay, cool. and move on to the next. But he would stand there and say, will you buy it? And I think the shameless promotion of the way he did things for his passion, it wasn't like selling like a used car or something. Right. It was like, this is my dream. Will you it, buy into it? It's so funny because I've had um, Luke from Two Live Crew on the podcast. Uh-huh. And Luke said something very similar, which is just that he, he had to hustle. Like he had to get in front of every radio station. Yes. Like here's this rap we just did. It's very Miami. Stop playing all the New York and California stuff. Let's go all Miami. Um, and he would go and develop his Miami sound yeah. uh, on all the radio stations. Exactly. I mean, all the great minds that you've interviewed and people that you know, they've all, they didn't just like go through life and things were just handed to them to get to where they wanted to be. They worked harder than anyone else. And then they started to get smart about how they did it as well to leverage it. I think the smart, you have to, you can't, most people don't know the, the art of the hustle. Yes. So I think along, let's just say for the heck of it, that it does take that 10,000 hours to achieve like greatness. Or, well, let's just say somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 yes. hours. But somewhere along the way, you also have to learn what the correct ways to hustle are and yes. what the incorrect ways. Like if your brother was on an airplane, he wouldn't just hand his yeah, album yeah. to everybody yes. on the airplane. He's handing it to the people who already just listened to him. Exactly. So, yeah. And also you got to learn how to, it comes back to your health, which we'll talk about in a second, is you can't just hustle for years and years and neglect your health and be like, well, I'm hustling and I'm not sleeping in the result of it. That's not serving you and you can't, you're not going to be energy to perform. That's so true. Like I never trust anyone who tells me they only need three hours of sleep a night. Like you really need six at least. I I was going to say eight, but I like eight myself, but like six hours, I feel like is the minimum to recover for, if you're putting out that rate of work and you're producing that much energy, your body needs to recover. Your mind needs to relax. Yeah. I need, I need eight personally, but six the minimum. I need like 10 personally. Exactly. But what I try to do is honestly, I try to do eight and then two in the afternoon if I can. Yeah. Um, hustle is a, I mean, I would say the hustle is kind of like the key component for me and where I've got to where I'm at because I didn't feel you like were I totally was, hustling because I didn't feel like I was smart. I didn't feel like I had any talent or skills after football, which I didn't. I, I didn't go to business school. But you um, had you had the skill of learning what it was like to prepare for yes, excellence. I had that. But I was like a 23 year old punk. And who would pay me money to do anything at that time? And now I've been able to build up a, a fairly nice businesses. And, and I would suggest. Um, People should go back and listen to the very first podcast you and I did because you described in detail how you hustled to build. um, I mean, you totally hustled probably more than just about any one of my podcast guests, like getting doing all these LinkedIn LinkedIn meetups and then and then transforming that into the webinars and and so on. And and so you kept building it to the next level. I did like 20 events around the country in one, you know, one year I was doing sending messages one by one to people on LinkedIn to connect and get on the phone and interview people. I was doing the stuff that was tedious, like work, that most people don't enjoy doing, but I feel like that's what helped build the relationships that I have now. Yeah, no, that's, uh, the, the develop hustle is really critical. And people think, okay, I'm just gonna um, hit a golf ball 20,000 times, <laughs> and but you're still not gonna get into any big tournaments. No. Like you've gotta now take it to the next level, like find the people in your industry, mm-hmm. whether it's golf or, or buying good real estate for your store or, finding the right manufacturers to make your shoes or figuring out exactly. the exact wires that are going to hold you between the two towers, exactly. you know? So, you and so you talk about, uh, master your body, but I want to, I want to combine that with practice positive habits. Yes. So, so, 
unrelated to the, the areas that you're uh, achieving greatness in, um, what are positive habits that you would recommend people people do? You know, I think what is it? I think Brian Tracy or Jim Rohn or something like that said that. Um, what do they say? Something like successful people are simply those with successful habits. And it's very simple. These are habits that are challenging sometimes to get started. But once you have these in place, I'm talking about the first two hours of your day and then the things you do throughout the day. Once you have these in place, I feel like you're just setting yourself up to win in a much bigger way. So, and this is where I think it's really important to not be bogged down by either negative relationships yes. or ne negative emotional situations, or again, like some kind of substance abuse or any kind of like, not just substance abuse, but any kind of addiction. Um, and then, uh, I mean, what are some successful habits that are, let's sure. say, a, a starter habits to practice? Here's a starter one that I believe everyone should be doing. It's something our moms taught us from an early age. What did your mom tell you every morning to do? Wash your hands. Wash your hands, it's a great one. Yeah. Uh, what well, else? Wash your brush your teeth. Yes, it's a great so, one too. These are simple things we should be doing. These I like how, how Elrod's got one. Um, take a glass of water because he says great. it's like an inner bath. Exactly. Yeah. So the miracle morning, right? Yeah, I love yeah. That guy. Um, something that I started doing only a few years ago. I, sh I wish I was doing my whole life, but my mom always said, "Make my bed." And I never did it when I was I, a kid. I never did it. I, I never did. I was like, whatever. I just threw myself around, and I always come back, and it was like this messy, you know, bed that I come back to. And as I started doing this a few years ago, um, do you remember the uh, mastermind talks with the, the monk? Yeah, that yeah. That talked about making your bed? I yeah. started doing it after that. And I'll tell you what, everything started changing for me throughout my day. Here's what I noticed. I started making my bed every single day. And I felt clear afterwards. I felt like I accomplished something. I was like, I'm building momentum in the first five minutes by making my bed and making it clean. When I came back into my room throughout the day because I worked from home, I didn't feel like I had a messy space. So I felt like everything was cleared and ready to go for me to sleep in again at night as opposed to being sloppy. That, that is a good one because um, it, has, it has a feeling of discipline to it. Discipline. And there's a reason why the Army, the Navy, all these people focus on making your bed. There's a reason for it. Is it starts you being disciplined first thing in the morning. It keeps you committed really throughout interesting. the day. You know, um, I, I don't do that mostly because I wake up earlier than Claudia. So sure, sure, sure. it's harder to, to do it. But um, – I always try to write down um, 10 odd things to be grateful for. Mm -hmm. Like it's too easy for me to say, okay, I'm grateful for my, my children and Claudia yes, and my health. Yeah. So I try to think of like, you know, uh, uh, you, you know, oh, there's, there's noise outside and it woke me up. So now I'm able to, you know, I'm going to wake up a tiny bit earlier today to start my day. Yeah, so I'll great. be grateful for that or, or whatever. It's so noisy because I live in such a great city. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm thankful to, to be here. Yes. So, so just quirky things because it may challenges the gratitude muscle. Of course. So, gratitude is something that I talk about where it's, you know, on my voicemail, if you call me, I remember this. Yeah. The first thing I say is, you know, tell me what you're most grateful for and then I'll respond respond to you. Um, also I create a list in the morning of what I'm most grateful for. So I'm glad to know you do that. And then also at night, the last person I talk to before I go to bed, I ask them what are the three things they're most grateful for. I think it's important to That's a good idea. pull it out of other people as well because sometimes gonna, we forget. I'm going to start so trying Claudia, that. you should say, what are the three things you're most grateful for today? Yeah. And let her share. And then you share. These are my most things I'm most grateful for. You, you know what? Finish the day like that. It's so powerful. You know what I do uh, and I tell my kids to do is at the at the very last thing of the day is ask yourself, who did I help today? Mm -hmm. So that means the next day, you know, you're going to be asking yourself that question at the end of the day. So you're constantly get, figuring out like how to answer that question. Mm -hmm. That's powerful. So, so that's, that's my, my eve. You know, everyone talks about the, the miracle morning, morning yeah. but like there's also a miracle evening you could do as well. Exactly. You know, like, and as you said, like, you know, preparing yourself well for sleep because sleep yes. is so critical. And that includes digestion and eating habits before, you know, at night, because if you, if you bog down on eating this the, at midnight, the second before you go to sleep, you're not going to really have a pleasant sleep. Sure, sure. So, um, I think, you know, there's some other habits of like the, the wealthiest people in the world. You know, they, they wake up earlier than most people. They read something every single day. Um, they, they watch so many hours less of TV every week than most people. Um, they're creating more. So these are like just basic habits, like find something every day that you can create, whether that's a five minute, uh, 
poem that you're writing or a video you want to put out there or a podcast? I think that is so important. Like, well, I always recommend people write down 10 ideas a day, but you can fine tune that in lots of different ways. Yeah, and exactly. I think even, even just two minutes of writing something down, like you said, like a, a three line poem, uh, is, is powerful. You know, yet yesterday we were talking about comedians earlier. Uh, yesterday I listened to, um, an interview that, this comedian Anthony Jeselnik did, and he used to be a writer for Jimmy Fallon, uh -huh. and he would have to write 70 jokes a day. Wow. So That's imagine doing that over years, he became an extremely good joke writer. Like, it's incredible, and then you see him in action, you can tell this is like a hard, developed skill. So, Amazing. But it just required him sitting down and just doing that every day. Here's the thing, I was, I was talking with Michael Port, do you know Michael Port? Yeah, speaker. I was talking with him a few weeks ago, and he was talking about you know all the haters in the world, the people that are critics of our work, things like that, these people aren't creators because when we're creating something every day, we don't have the time to criticize other people right? and to critique That's a really good people. point. So focus on creating. You're not going to be criticizing other people or critiquing because you're going to be so focused on what you want to create. I have to be honest though, like all of these ways do sound like, uh, like, like that, that sounds like a strategy for how do you, how do I deal with the hate comments, you know, because there's always hate comments on yes. everything you do. Yes. But still, it hurts my feelings. Of course. Again, you know, course. somebody, let's say there's a thousand hate comments uh, on something that you do that you're proud of. One of them is going to, by accident, figure out what button to push that your mother literally, pushed when you were two years old. <laughs> They're going to leave a one-star review and say this is the worst book ever. Or yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's always, it's hard because why do they do that? Why do they take the time out of their lives to like ruin your, to put their, put their hand in your wallet and take money out? But think about it. Do you know any New York Times bestselling author and do you, um, have you ever left a one-star review for another author? Never. Why? Yeah. And I've never written a YouTube comment. Okay. And why have you never left a negative or bad review for someone? Because I don't want to hurt them. Okay. You don't want to yeah. hurt them, but you're also like. You know I, and by the way, I don't read books that I know are going to be one star by the end. Like usually I can right, tell right, right away. Right, so. right, right. But you're also, you're like, you can appreciate the work and the energy that goes into creating something based on the years that yeah. you've done it. And you understand like, okay, maybe it doesn't work for me, but I'm not going to leave a negative review. No, that's true. I mean, think about it. How long did it take you to write this book? It took, I mean. And you're like dyslexic. So exactly. how long did it take I mean, it took a while. It took a lot of people helping me. It was a couple years process of writing a proposal and then writing the book. And Gosh, I remember... It was like a year and a half ago we were talking about uh, <laughs> you were you were just shopping around yes, yes. for the Last book proposals yeah. and stuff. So, so it's been a while. It's been a process of editing back and forth. Number of people reading it. My whole team helping me edit it because I can't edit this thing. Well, which segues into the next sec section, which I have found particularly lately, but all my life. So I've started a bunch of different businesses. Uh -huh. And the key to success is building that winning team. That's it. And you know, it's amazing. It. We were just talking about this before. Yeah, like, it, and, and it's amazing. Like now I'm thinking about um, angel investing and investing in general. The, the number one difference between the successful investments and the failed investments has nothing to do with product. Like they, they could have the best product in the world. If the team is not like A plus quality, every single person, then it's a failed investment. That's it, yeah. And you can't, it's hard to, you have to be a really good judge of people. And often if that's a very yes. difficult skill to develop. Yeah. A good guy I interviewed in the book for this is uh, Scooter Braun. And he's the guy who found Justin yeah, Bieber. Yeah, sure. I, mean, I know Adam Braun very well. Yes. Adam Braun's been on the podcast. Yes, Adam's so, great. So, so Scooter, when I had him on to talk about this, uh, building a winning team, he was like, you know, I used to want to do everything on my own and it was exhausting. It was exhausting and I got results, but at what cost? And he's like, and I was never able to build it to the place I wanted it to be on my own with all the artists he was managing, Justin Bieber and stuff like that. He said, when I brought on the team of all-stars, sometimes they didn't do it the way I wanted them to do it. You know, maybe I got frustrated because it wasn't my way, but it was still a great job. And sometimes it was even better than I could have done it. And I realized that I can never do anything truly great on my own. It always takes a great team around you. It, it does. And I'll give, I'll give two examples. One is when I was starting my first company, which was successful, I didn't realize this at first, and then, but then I realized it. And that moment, it was like a light switch went on. I'm yeah. like, oh my gosh, now I can not just clone myself, but make better versions <laughs> of myself. Like, exactly. so, like I was the programmer for my company, but then I got a guy 
And I didn't, and people think you need money to build a team. You don't need money. So I got a guy who simply wanted to learn yes. the style of internet programming we were doing. And so he would do, he was a great skilled programmer, but he had never done programming for the internet. So he just would do it as a challenge for himself. Yeah. He was on his own path to excellence. And I fortunately found him because again, what goes around comes around. I had helped him in the past and so on. And so, so suddenly he was doing my work and he was part of my team. And then again, I would uh, hold contests for designers to find my designers and, and, and the contest would be the projects we were getting paid right, for. Right, exactly. So, so uh, it was, you don't always, you can find clever ways to build your yes. team. Yes. So, cause everybody, we're all working towards some vision as you, as you mentioned. And if you could kind of, you know, money is again, one form of, payment, but there's other ways to help people, you know, exactly. achieve their visions so they can help you. Exactly. Yeah. And I, you know, I, and people will say, well, there's individual athletes, so they have teams, you know, there might be the tennis player, but, the but he's got the coach, he's got the coach, he's got the sports psychologist, he's got the manager, the trainer, the nutritionist, he's got his family who's on his team that has to be supportive. If they're not supportive, he's right. not going to make it. You know, he's going to have that negative uh, self doubt. Oh, okay. Or, so what if you're, well, I'm going to pick the worst uh, situation. Well, okay. What if you're in jail, like your brother? Yeah. How, did, how did he build his team while he was in jail? It's a great example because luckily we were very supportive and we went every weekend to support him. So he had family. He had family. Where did he get the violin training? He did it with the family. I mean, my parents trained him since he was four years old. Wow. And he went to classes. I mean, he was doing it as a classical violinist. He was one of the top in the country as a okay. teenager. What if, what if you grew up in a ghetto where everyone tells you uh, where, where your parents are nowhere and yeah. everyone tells you you can't get out of the ghetto? Like they're gonna, yeah, yeah, the challenge is you got to be aware of this. you got to have like the self-awareness to be like, okay, my family isn't supporting me. Um, so hopefully you're finding inspiration from somewhere where you can get Say, okay, there's a boys and girls club I can go to, or from my teachers, I can have some, some connection with them after class where they can teach me more things, or I can ask questions from people that inspire me. Find someone that inspires you and ask them to mentor you if you don't have this from your family. And, and I would go uh, a step further and say, like, if you're in a jail or yes. in the ghetto, you might not have the mentor physically in front of you, but read as many books as you can. Of he was reading every single day. He was like reading the dictionary. He was doing everything. And the things in prison, they have programs as well. Even though you're in prison, they have, you can take college class. And so he went to the university there at prison and he was taking advantage of every opportunity that came to him. There were other inmates who were still good people. They made mistakes, but they're good people that he surrounded himself with artists. He would send me artwork that other inmates would create for him hmm. to send to me. And he would write me letters. And I'm sure there's still inspiring people in prison, yeah. even though they've made mistakes. You know, um, one technique I find very effective on writing is I find a story that I love, like love beyond belief, and I'll personally rewrite it mm. because that makes me think of for each line, what was the author thinking when he made that decision? Mm -hmm. Like when he said, um, the sun had 15 minutes yet to live as opposed to the sun was going down in 15 minutes. What, how did he, did it add or subtract to the story? You know, what was he thinking? So when you, when you do things like that, or for, for your brother, probably, uh, looking at, you know, playing all sorts of like classical violin pieces and stuff was probably a good practice. Uh, of course, yeah, yeah. so, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. Um, but that, the that was a virtual way to mentor. Yeah, of course. I mean, now you can, you can build your, your team through books, through podcasts, through things like that. That's like your own mentor, like you said. And, and you know, and you know, also there's a lot of websites like Fiverr.com yes. or Freelance.com where, uh, uh, and Freelance.com, the, the CEO has been on my podcast, but there's all these websites where for, for $5, you can find people to, to help you maybe. Exactly. And it might not be the A team, but right, right. it could be the B plus team. Yeah. Exactly. So, uh, and then finally your, your last section is live a life of service, yes. which we talked about before is kind of coming full circle, yep. but I, I do agree that, um, money is and, and success. I, I shouldn't have even have used money first there, but, but some sort of degree of contentment and success is just a byproduct of living a life of service. Cause yes. that's the part that feels really good. You know, it's in some ways, you look at Scooter Braun as an example, yeah. like the guy found talent and saved those kids lives. So he, they became mega stars. Exactly. And then they also entertain tens of millions of people. Yeah. They serve a lot of people through music and through giving back in that way. I mean, Adam Braun's another example we talk about here. He, you know, here's the thing. 
it feels like it's almost selfish to give back because it always feels the best for me. When I give to someone or I'm giving back or I'm building a school, it's like it's the greatest gift I can give myself is to like see these kids and experience this gift of giving. So in some ways it's very selfish to give and be in service because it feels so good. But this is like, what's the point if we're just doing it all for ourselves? We're just trying to make money for ourselves. We're just trying to gain for our benefit without, like we were, we have a huge gift. The way I look at it, it's like we were given this world. The world is here for us to experience. And it's our duty to give back to the world, as cheesy as they may sound. But it's like we were born here. We're born in America. We're born wherever we were. We have resources available for us. It's, we can't take it for granted. I feel like it's our mission to give back. And the way I talk about giving back as well, if you don't have money or the time and all these different things, you can give back and live in service every single day just by walking down the street and smiling at someone or by opening the door or doing something nice. Yes, I think that's a good point. It's and, the and easiest way to practice. Do it. It's a great practice. It should be the way we live every single moment. I'm constantly opening doors for people. I'm constantly saying, how are you? I'm constantly smiling when I walk down the street as opposed to putting my head down. I just smile at people. And I love seeing a little smirk come from them at the last moment when we walk by, they just smile as well. And I'm like, you know what? If they had a smile on What if face, it was like a little girl though? Don't you feel a little creepy? Well, I'm not doing that. I mean, you have to understand and have the awareness of like every situation, but I might like put my hand on as a high five or, uh -huh. or say something nice about like her shoes yeah. or something. You know, it's like, you've got to have the awareness of who you're around and things like that. But always to be a better person and to leave everyone better than when you found them. I think that's the way we should be. Well, I, I think again about your, the guy, um, uh, Martinez, the yeah, shooter. Angel Martinez. Yeah. yeah. He, I, I think about that because again, you would think normally someone who starts a shoe company, he's basically in it to build up the shoe company and sell yes. a lot of shoes and make a lot of money. But the way you describe him, um, is as having this passion about shoes and what, what you know, our feet are, so important because they, they travel us everywhere in the world yeah, yeah. and uh, and being able to take care of them and, and enhance them in some way yes, through exactly. footwear is actually a very critical vision and, and life of purpose. Exactly. Um, and here's, here's, my gut yeah. would be to say he's in it for the money, but that wasn't it at all when you describe him. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, I look at uh, someone like the guy from Tom's Shoes who's like, okay, he's making money, but he's also every pair, there's another pair that goes to a kid who doesn't have shoes. and Scooter Braun I've, uh, said recently when I interviewed him, he said, you know, everything I create now has a charitable component attached to it. Otherwise, I don't do it. If we don't attach a charitable component, if it's just for our financial benefit, it doesn't serve me and other people, and it's not what I want to do. And I find when you interview the richest people in the world, <clears throat> maybe this isn't true, but I find the people, the wealthiest people I interview, when I ask them about it, how they made their wealth, they say, the more and more I give back or donate money or give my money away, the more money I make. Well, or their vision is such that they're, they, again, the money is a byproduct. Yes. They're performing some service for the world where the world enormously benefits. Yes. And then just as a natural consequence, because the world values this so much, money or value is created. So take Ev Williams, who created uh, Blogger, Twitter, and Medium. And he grew up in a town of 369 people, and now suddenly he creates these Crazy. networks that connect the entire world, and we kind of boiled down in the interview, he just wanted to make more friends. So he created a way for like Amazing. people all over the world could be friends with each other. Amazing. So That's it, a lot of value. Yeah, it's a lot, lot of value. Because it means how many tens of millions of people use those services. Sure, sure. So, Amazing. Yeah, so living a life of service for me, it's it shouldn't just be about our benefit, it should be about serving our dreams and the benefit of all in that process. And, and what's, you know, and, and that, that's the last section of the book, but I want to ask, what's the process of, of reinvention? Because mm -hmm. take, so I'm, gonna, I, I'm, I'm sorry I keep referring to other podcasts, but like, so I interviewed Coolio, right, the yeah. rapper, and he did Gangster's Paradise in 1994, and that was sort of like his last huge hit. And then after that, you know, he, he I don't want to say he didn't quite, properly reinvent himself because he has tried on a number of occasions, but he also had problems with substance abuse and, sure. and things like that afterwards. I think it's kind of important to always reinvent, to, to go from greatness to greatness because yes. you're not going to do the same thing all your life. Uh, you have involved. to kind of like go move from, in some cases you have to move from ambition to meaning. In some cases you have to find another area where you could, you know, use your, your yeah. talents. And some people, you know, the great, the great athletes sometimes don't know how to translate this. They live in the past. They focus on what they created as opposed to what they're going to create. But people like George Foreman, 
found a way to turn this mean personality killing people in the boxing rank to be how can I be the most lovable person in the world and sell and you know, hundreds of millions of dollars of George Foreman grills. Yeah, I think he made like 300 million on the Same, George Foreman right? grill. And Much more able, than he's ever made on boxing. He's able to reinvent himself. I look at um, Madonna as someone who could have been stuck in the 80s with Like a Virgin right. and all these other songs, but every three, four years, she comes out with a new twist, a new angle that, that's present with the times. And she's always relevant, it feels like. You know, for 20 something years, she's able to be relevant. Uh, so some people learn how to adjust and evolve into a new vision. And other people get stuck on the past vision they have. You know, some people could be stuck on winning that gold medal, and that's what they live off the rest of their life if they don't learn to translate those skills into a new vision. I think that's really, really important. Like you can't just walk around the street wearing that gold medal. That's it. You gotta be able to creating. take. Yeah, you, 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 you did everything it takes to know how to be the type of person to get that gold medal. Now you can use that body of knowledge yeah. that you gained into any other area build of life. Go a company, go start a nonprofit, go some, do something new, be a broadcaster, right. whatever it may be. Or a public speaker yeah. about these things. Something where you can leverage it and continue to serve and give back. Or you could write a book called The School of Greatness That's it. by Lewis Howes, H-O-W-E-S, The School of Greatness. I'm getting it more now, the subtitle, A Real World Guide to Living Bigger, Loving Deeper, and Leaving a Legacy. And, uh, Lewis, thanks a lot. This is such an excellent book. I really recommend it to anybody listening, and I'm going to recommend it on my, my book list this month as well. So really, really appreciate you coming on to the, the show. Thanks so much, James. For more from James, check out the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network at stansberryradio.com and get yourself on the free insiders list today. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.